Philippians chapter 2. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with his spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete in being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. May God bless the reading of his word. Mark Summel wrote his debut novel, Describing Family Life, and he entitled it Making Nice. And the book blurb describes it this way. He blur, well, his description of family life blurs the line between fighting for and fighting with the only family you've got. Fighting for and fighting with family. The Wall Street Journal describes the overall flow of the novel as cringe-inducing funny. But he's trying to capture the nature of family life, which we're all familiar with. On the one hand, the closest relationships in your life, fighting for one another, at the same time, sometimes the most conflicted relationships in your life, fighting with one another. We have a lot of young parents, and you know the feeling when you have a baby. You know that, on the one hand, cutest thing you've ever seen, even if they do look like you. On the other hand, the noise they omit, and the insistence, and the fussing, and the self-centeredness, and the fatigue, and the chronic tiredness, you know, you don't get but through the first few months and finally figure out the routines and maybe you get a week or two peace and then the kid starts teething. And you get through that and then maybe a month or two peace and then the terrible twos set in, often early, like at 18 months. And you get through that and you have a few more years peace and you know what's coming next is, well, from my perspective, well, I won't give you, anyway. So, I, I know a pastor who happened to be out with his daughter at dinner one evening when she, when she was 10. He was recently by and was telling this story. Uh, and so he took her out to a nice place and made sure it was nice and really warm. And then over dinner he said, you know, you know, right now we're having a good time and I want you to remember this. Because some years are coming, probably pretty soon, when we're going to be in a lot of conflict. And I want you to remember the times that we weren't in conflict, that we were nice and we were happy together. Making nice, a characteristic of families. 
On the one hand, the people that we care most about, and the other, the people we fight most with. Now, most of you would be aware that Irene and I are soon retiring and moving to Florida. Florida because that's where my, primarily because that's where my mother is. You know, when you've got nobody, family is defined as when you've got nobody else to go to and no other people to go to, these are the people you can go to and they have to take you in. Now, you know, my relationship with my mother throughout life was reasonably positive. Perhaps because they, my parents sent me away to boarding school for three years when I was a teenager. It's really hard to fight when you're a hundred miles apart. But whatever the reason, it's still the relationships that we keep the closest, the longest. And yet they're the ones that are most conflicted. And there's an irony to it, but it's the same irony that affects us as a church community. Because you think, if there's any people, group of people that we share something intimate with, it's the, it's, as Christians, we, we share the conviction and the, the, the gratitude that we celebrate today at communion, that Jesus died for us, and that he lives in us to transform us. And you think, this brings warm relationships with each other, brings connection to each other. And it does. And yet, how do you explain the silly little tiffs or the hostile, angry quarrels that we get into from time to time? You know, church fights are a notorious contradiction of the gospel and our professions. And yet they happen often. In the life of any church, you'll have fights. And, you know, people say, how can they be Christians and treat each other this way? Well, the most important thing we can learn from Philippians is that church fights are nothing new. This question of how can they be Christians and treat each other this way is common enough. Now, Philippians doesn't explore why we fight, but it does help address how to overcome our fights, how to work through our fights to a deeper place. Now, just by way of review, and I won't go into the detail, at some point I'll write it up and put it in your bulletin. But basically what we've been looking at this whole season, this whole, uh, the last two semesters, this semester and last semester, what we've been looking at is, is given the promises of the Old Testament, and that Christ came to fulfill the promises of the Old Testament, given those promises, and, and the glory that the Old Testament promises. And, and yet, yet we, we've got the fulfillment of some of those. We have the forgiveness of our sins. We have Christ dwelling within us. But we don't have the fulfillment of all the promises. And that's, Jesus postponed it. Jesus uh, divided the fulfillment into two parts. Now and the future. The Old Testament thought, once the Messiah comes, all the fulfillment be there. Jesus comes, and only half of it's there. And he says, half now, the rest later. So the question that the New Testament poses for us is, is how do we live in the meantime? And we've looked at a number of issues. This morning we look at this. How do we live together as a community of Christians in the meantime? How do we live together as a church? Our last major conflict, I think, church-wide was probably 14 years ago. So that's a bit remote. We won't, don't need to recover that, get back into that. But, you know, we have a lot of little squabbles from time to time. 
Now, as pastor, mostly I'm insulated from these because most of the people, most of you, most of us are Asian, and we try to hide these things from public view. You know, we don't bring them. But every so often, something will leak out, and I'll hear about it. Uh, you know, I remember a guy in our church who eventually left because he felt that nobody liked him. And he struggled this, with this for two or three years, and finally he just gave up. Nobody liked him, or not enough people liked him, or the people didn't like him enough. And, you know, eventually he, he left. There was a woman in our church, in our congregation once, who didn't have, well, who, I want to be vague about this. Uh, there was a woman in our congregation once who basically fought with all the other women in the congregation, or seemed to be. And eventually, she left. There was a couple of families, and the two families fought, and the two wives had arguments, and eventually, well, no, the other family never set foot in the church again. And they left. We have had men fight over women, and then they leave. So there's, there's a lot of these little things that go on. And I'm only talking about adult ministry. I don't know what goes on in youth ministry. My son keeps confidence. He doesn't tell me stories. And most of you keep, I hardly ever hear, I can only imagine if these are the stories that have leaked up to my level, I wonder how many stories there, there are really. Or whether how many of you are currently in conflict with somebody else. Now, we have our church broken down into fellowships. So when you get into conflict with somebody, if you're in the same small group, there's an easy solution as you go to another small group if the pastors will let you, or the small, you know, the fellowship leaders will let you. But in a fellowship, if you have a fight with somebody else, sometimes you gotta, you know, you're, you're inclined to leave the fellowship or you leave the church if you see them too much and you're too angry with them. Now that was an option available to us. We can leave because there's a bunch of other churches around. But in the first century, they also had these conflicts. Only they didn't have the solution we use. Now, the fact that the solution's available to us doesn't say that it's the right solution. All it says is, this is why we have a fight, we leave. We go somewhere else. But in the first century, they couldn't go anywhere else. There was no other church. So either they drop out, or they stay there, and they not, you know, they fight it out with each other. Now, in the book of Philippians, it's really remarkable that there's three issues going on in Philippians. Only one of them is fighting. But the other two, we would think, are much bigger issues. But Paul treats the fighting with grave seriousness. You could say he elevates that to the top of the three issues. So let me briefly describe the three issues, and then we'll look at what he says about the fighting together. You notice in Philippians chapter 1, verses 28 to 30, he mentions that they're facing persecution. Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 28, don't be frightened in any way by those who oppose you. And he talks about how he suffered persecution as an example to them that they're going to suffer persecution. 
Uh, you remember from the book of Acts, chapter 16, when Paul first went to Philippi and he shared the gospel. He cast a demon out of some girl that was telling fortunes and making her slave owners a lot of money. And he cast a demon out. She couldn't tell fortunes anymore. The slave owners got angry. They started a riot. Paul got arrested. They didn't care. In the law court, they didn't care who was right, who was wrong. All they wanted to know was who was what was the storm about. They found out that Paul was the center of the storm. So for good measure, they beat him. And they didn't try to ascertain whether he was guilty or not. He must have been guilty. He created the storm. He was a troublemaker. They beat him. And then they shipped him out of town. And then the Philippians also had to live with this insecurity then about being persecuted. And Paul says to them, don't be frightened in any way by those who oppose you. But we looked at persecution in First Thessalonians, and that First Thessalonians is all about persecution. So we won't focus on that this morning. Then there was... The threat of heresy infiltrating the church. Paul talks about that in chapter 3, verses 2 to 4. He writes about these people. Watch out for those dogs. Now you see, this is a Jewish heresy, a heresy with Jewish background, and dogs were unclean animals. They were vermin in the first century. So Paul talks about these Judaizers, these false teachers, these Christians from a Jewish background. The same kind of people he talked about in Romans, the same kind of people he talked about in Galatians. We looked at it then, so we won't concentrate on it now. But notice what he says about them. There's a time when we have to fight. He says, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. They were promoting circumcision, and he calls them mutilators of the flesh. For it's we who are this true circumcision, we who serve God by His Spirit, we who boast in Christ. So there's Theological conflict problem in the church. There's persecution from outside the church. And yet there's also this conflict between two leading women in the church. We hear about it in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. I plead with you, Odia, and I plead with Suntuche, he says. I plead with these two women to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, I ask you, my true companion, he's writing to Philippians, I help these women, since they've contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. Now, women had a very prominent role in the church of Philippi. We go into great extensive debate about ordination of women and women as pastors, whatever. We won't get into that a lot today. But just note that in the church of Philippi, the first and leading convert was a woman in Acts 16. And here, two more of the leaders were women, but they're at odds. Now, these are, are women, each of them, that, that Paul has a relationship with. More than that, these are not immature Christian people. They, they've served Paul. They've partnered with him in the gospel. Help these women, since they have contended at my side. They stood beside him when he faced persecution. They stood beside him when he faced when he preached the gospel. And still they're in conflict. And it's harming the church. So when Paul faces three issues, uh, writes to a church facing three issues, they, they face persecution. They face false teaching. And they have two of their leading members in conflict. The brunt of Paul's emphasis on this letter is not on the persecution. The brunt of his emphasis in this letter is not on the false teaching. He gives some attention to persecution in chapter 1, quite brief. 
He gives extensive attention to false theology in Philippians 3. But all of chapter 2 and the most theological section of his letter relates all back to this. How can we live together in peace as Christians? You wouldn't think it needs to be asked. But from our own experience it does. And from the early days of the New Testament it does. How can we live together in peace? And so that's the focus of our reflections this morning. Paul begins in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Notice how, first of all, he raises the stakes. Chapter 2, Paul basically writes, if you've had any Christian experience of all, at all, if you've had any experience of Christ at all, notice how he says in chapter 2, verse 1, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have any comfort from his love, if you have any common sharing, participation in the spirit, if you have any tenderness and compassion. Paul says, if you disregard what I'm about to tell you, then what you're saying about yourself is that you're not united with Christ, you don't know his love, you don't have any experience of the spirit, you have no tenderness and compassion. You see how he raises the stakes for them. He says, you've got to address this if you're really a Christian. You can't just leave or ignore it. You've got to figure it out if you're a Christian. If you have any encouragement for being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, any common sharing in the spirit, any tenderness and compassion, if you have any genuine experience of Christ at all, he says, we've got to figure this out. He raises the stakes again by four times calling for unity. Verse 2, chapter 2, verse 2. Make my joy complete. How will they make his joy complete? Be like-minded. Have the same love. Be one in spirit. Be of one mind. You see his point. We've got to address this if we're Christians. He continues with it. And, and here's his prescription. Here's the solution as he sees it. And it's not a comfortable solution. But first he's going to state the solution. Then he's going to give the theological basis for the solution. And then he's going to give two case studies for the solution. So first a statement, then a theological foundation, and then two case studies. So here's his solution. Verses 3 to 4. When we face conflict, here's this, his solution. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Again, he says the same thing basically four times. No selfish ambition or vain conceit. Don't elevate yourself. Treat yourself as if you're important. Instead, in humility, value others above yourselves. Don't look to your own interests. Now there's an interesting uh, difference between the NIV earlier version, 1984, and the NIV that I'm reading to you this morning. If you look in the Pew Bible, the old version of the NIV says, don't look only to your own interests. Which is a very curious translation because the only word is not there in the Greek. I think the translators are respecting the reality of our own self-interest. We will always look to our own interests. So the 
translators just don't do that only, but also for the interest of others. It's not in the Greek. And so the new NIV translates it more accurately. Don't look to your own interests. Don't look after your own interests. Rather, look after each other's interests. And that's his solution. Not find an intermediary. Not stand up for what you think is right. Not get, talk to people around you to get people on your side. Not gossip. Not fight it out. Simply his answer is this. Lower yourself a little bit. Quit demanding that it be done your way. Do it their way. Now, it doesn't cover every case. It certainly doesn't cover false theology. He insulted those people on purpose. He picked a fight with them because they had picked a fight with him. He fought back. It doesn't solve how we face persecution and opposition from outside. And it may not even cover every case between Christian and Christian. But what Paul is trying to do is supplant our first instinct at least. This may not be the first, the full solution, but it's at least the first step. Because when we get into conflict, what we say is, it has to be done my way. I'm the king, I'm the queen, I'm the boss. It's got to be done my way or it's intolerable. So Paul's first response is, no, we lower ourselves and elevate other people. And he gives this theological argument for this, one of the, the most famous passage in the book of Philippians. And possibly one of the most famous passages in the entire New Testament. The theological argument is this. You do it for each other because Jesus, he did it for you. Jesus, who was far more exalted, lowered himself far greater degree for you. Therefore, you, you're not nearly so exalted, and you don't have to lower yourself quite so much. So if Jesus did this, we can do this. Verse, chapter 2, verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, although he was in the very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. Exalted in heaven, he made himself nothing. He took on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And not only did he take on the flesh, not only did God take on flesh, not only did the infinite, omniscient, omnipotent take on the limitations of human beings, but once he took on the limitations of human being in the flesh, once he was incarnate, what did he do then? Found an appearance as a man, verse 8. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. And not only did he do that, not only did he descend from heaven not only to become incarnate, not only then did he become obedient to God to the point of death, but even a heinous form of death designed to insult and torment, even death on a cross. So as we celebrate communion this morning, the message that Paul is taking away in this passage from communion is to remember this. Jesus was exalted. He became incarnate. He died for us. And he died even on a humiliating, painful cross. So Paul says, if that's what Christ did for us, then how should we respond to each other? Verse 12. Therefore, do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault.
this is the takeaway for us today from communion. Paul's takeaway for the Philippians from communion. If this is what Jesus did for us, then we can do something much more modest for each other. And this may not cover every bit of conflict we have. And we may have to follow up with other steps. Sometimes we we can just let it go. Sometimes we have to actively talk it out. Sometimes we have to get other people involved to help us reconcile. But this is the huge and most painful and biggest step. As we come down from our thrones and put other people up higher than ourselves. And that's the sum of Paul's theological argument. Not that Christ died to save us from our sins, but that Christ died to give us an example of how we should live together in community by lowering ourselves to others. And then he follows it up with two case studies. First, he mentions Timothy. He mentions his own associate, chapter 2, verses 19 to 21. He says about Timothy this. You see, Timothy is an example of humility that puts other people above himself. Because what did Timothy do? I have no one else, Paul says. The Apostle Paul says, also Paul's in prison. He says, I've got nobody else with me like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. So Paul says, I sent Timothy to you because he's the only one I know that genuinely cares both for me and for you. And rather than keeping him with me, I gave him to you, even though I'm in jail. Timothy is a case study. And then he appeals to one of the people they know, Epaphroditus. They had sent to this church member, Epaphroditus, to Paul. And now Paul says, look, I'm sending Epaphroditus back to you because you need him too. And he highlights Epaphroditus, that Epaphroditus put other people above himself. Paul says about Epaphroditus, he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. So this is Paul's call to us. To put others above ourselves. To reduce the conflict that we have. Or when we're in conflict to say, you know, maybe I'm not right. Or even if I'm right, maybe it's not that important. Maybe what I should do in this case, not always, but maybe what I should do in this case is to give in and to give them what they want because nothing really fundamental is at stake except my ego. Why is it so hard to live together? We know generically sin and Satan. But Paul doesn't really address why it's hard. And he doesn't address who's at fault and how to figure out who's at greater blame. What he says is this. Live like Jesus. Let Jesus live through you. Give up your own rights for the sake of others. As Jesus gave up his rights, became incarnate, died on the cross. Let's pray together. Father, this stuff is so clear from Philippians. And it's so easy to talk about. And so hard to live in our families, amongst our friends, and in our church community when we have an actual conflict. Father, not only did Jesus die for us, he lives within us. So Jesus, we ask you to live your life through us. That just as you were exalted, 
and humbled yourself for us, so we might humble ourselves for one another. In your name we pray. Amen.